Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here, beginning episode 45 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So I just had to stop and start and stop and start a couple of times. I always try to listen to the prior episode right before I record the next one, just because I don't want to be repetitive and repeat things. Although when a week has gone by, if any of you ladies in your 50s are like me, remembering things isn't always a given. So I am beginning this one on July 3rd, Sunday, and I'm looking out the window and it's gorgeous outside. I had intended to do this yesterday. Yesterday was kind of a crappy day, as is the case with, this is a quick little story to start, as is the case with families and babies and all, you have to you know, divide and conquer. And so Kenny and Jack are both coming off two weeks of house arrest because of COVID. I went in the morning, you know, and did my workout. I coached a couple of classes, went to the chiropractor, went, ran to the bank and did all these things. When I got home at noon. I said, all I need to do today is record a podcast. No problem. No problem. So we split the day. So all afternoon I gave to Kenny and it was just about the time that we're going to switch. And he would take Jack and I would record the podcast and have a couple, a few hours to myself. And he comes and says, oh, I have the chance to go golfing with Davies. So Davies, his son, and they don't see each other much. And so I'm standing there and the only thing I can do is let him go golfing because if I don't, I'm a jerk for not letting him be with his son. He hasn't seen Davy in a while, but I had just spent four hours of a day that all I wanted to do was record a podcast. I have a list a mile long. And so he's like, well, I'll take him for a ride now and you get it done. Well, like 45 minutes. And he had to go to the grocery store and he had to there were, you know, so essentially yesterday I got home at noon and I had Jack until this morning, <laughs> this morning. And that's another whole funny story where sometimes you communicate and communicate and communicate with somebody and they just don't get it. So anyway, Kenny went golfing. It was great. I had Jack all evening. Kenny got home, visited for a little bit. I just went to bed because I was exhausted. Jack came to bed, sort of. He had a fitful sleep, so I'm up all night quite a bit. So in the morning, every time I tried to get up to get coffee because I needed to go you know, I wanted to start my day early and get some stuff done that I hadn't gotten done yesterday. He would wake up. So I'm lying in bed. So Kenny comes down. This has happened several times. He claims, I looked at you, you were sleeping. Well, I've told him a thousand times, come around, find my face and say, Barb, because I might just be lying there, not moving. And so that was the case today. I actually, my eyes were open. I could see the reflection in the TV. He came around, so he went to get coffee. So my assumption was that he was getting coffee and coming back. No, he goes back upstairs. I'm like, how nice for you. Nice. Yes. Yes. That's great. Anyway, I went to bed cranky and I woke up cranky and it's just, I don't like to have to say the same thing over and over again, but maybe I just do. It's a nice metaphor for my life where I make the same mistake a thousand times until I figure it out. Anyway, I just started the day off crabby. And again, I have to say, Kenny's a good dad. He, he does a lot, but it, it is now 440 on Sunday. And so I had all of yesterday's tasks, plus the podcast that never got recorded for today. And so I came home. And my mom is here. Now, my mom hasn't seen Jack in two weeks. So I get it. That's important. But I can't record a podcast when my mom is here because they're in and out of the house and there's noise and I'm interrupted. And where am I going to go record it? I, I guess I could go, I don't know, rent a room somewhere, record a podcast. I don't know. 
wasn't a day I was going to get anything done. And I can't dive into something that requires thought because I get interrupted 50 times. So I did a bunch of yard work, which is fine. It actually was a great way to mitigate stress. I don't know how you all are, but I love damaging nature. (laughs) And by that, I mean weeding and cutting down branches that are in the way of another branch. And so I just went out back and did all this yard work. But Friday night, I went to bed thinking I had the entire weekend to get stuff done because tomorrow's 4th of July. I'm timing a road race in the morning. We have company in the evening. So I'm saying it here because I need to say it out loud because I have to own the fact that my chaotic life is my choice. I could have said no to Kenny. I have to record a podcast. I'm sorry, you can't go golfing or you can't go until I'm done. Maybe you can't golf until 6.30 or 7. I don't do those things because I just immediately feel like it will come back to me. I don't advocate for myself sometimes like that. Kenny will say that I do what I want all the time and maybe I do, but so much of what I do is not fun. I don't do the equivalent of golfing all the time. You know, I work out every day, but that's as much survival as it is a social hour. And my given my current workout, the the two social workouts I get a week are the ones I go to Amesbury for, and I haven't been there in a month. So, you know, it's one of those things where I'm just, you can tell I'm starting this podcast off crabby, but it's authentic. I am who I am. My hair is dirty. It needs highlighting. I need a hairdresser. Anyway, so (sighs) big breath, Barbara, start the podcast fresh. So here I am in a crabby mood, crabby at Kenny, sometimes overwhelmed with where my life is in a million ways, feeling very, very burdened and heavy. And this podcast episode is is about meeting Kenny, or that's what I thought it was about. When I really sit back and look, relook at our notes, relook at notes I take with my conversations with Jace, my podcast editor, about what needs to come next and how to do it. I realized that there's a period of years in there between sort of my marriage to Eric ending and getting to know Kenny and, and becoming involved with Kenny. That's pretty, pretty clear in its relationship to my life now and my life sort of always. And in the middle of all that are these little blessings. And so in the past week, track camp ends last week, I'm spending the whole week trying to catch up, feeling woefully behind. I had this amazing, amazing visit. So here's where I did advocate for myself. I'm in a group called Power Circle. It's a group of women, female entrepreneurs. I think I've talked about it before. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful group of women. And our last meeting was last week sometime. So Lisa Christine, the woman that does this, and Lisa Christine is what her website goes by and all. Her last name is Somerville. She had like a summer garden party, soiree, picnic, whatever, at her house where she lives on the beach. And so I was so excited, so excited, so excited to go. And so I was going to go to MomStrong in the morning, even though I couldn't bring Jack. And then I thought, drive to Amesbury, go to MomStrong, drive home, get in the car and drive an hour away again to go to a garden party on the beach. So I did both at once. I went in the afternoon to CrossFit and B was coaching and it was great. And I did CFA 45. It was a great workout. And there were two other women working out. It was just a wonderful workout. The workout ends and we cooling off and all this sort of stuff. I'm nervous about it because I don't socialize a lot and I don't get together with people that I don't know real well. And I know that I knew would know some of the women in this meeting, but not a lot. So I had three outfits thrown into my duffel bag. One was just like leggings and a t-shirt. It was a nice sort of tie-dye shirt. I bought at a little shop in Amesbury actually. And then the other was like some like capri pants and like a blouse. And that actually would have been fine based on what some women were wearing. And then this beautiful dress that I also bought at the same shop in Amesbury that I bought the shirt. And I need to remember the name of it because I love the clothing there. The woman, Maddie, in my class, Madison, she says, so where is your party? So when I told her it was in Newburyport in an area, she's like, okay, you can't go to a garden party in Newburyport (laughs) in anything but a dress. And so I wore the dress and it was awesome. It was perfect. I felt attractive and and I went and had just had the most amazing night, I have to say. Lisa has the unbelievable ability to pull 
really creative, powerful, amazing women together. And I had the nicest time, delicious food, drinks, you know, just, just a wonderful time. I had drove home late. I got home at 11. Kenny and Jack were sound asleep on the bed. It was adorable. So I do have moments where I take care of myself. And, you know, that was a chunk of my day that I wasn't doing other things like recording podcasts and such. But I think networking is an important piece in all of this. And I'm really, I made some wonderful connections at this event, solidified my connection with Lisa. So that was a wonderful night. I really had a good time. I'm telling that story to restructure my brain so I'm not so crabby as I start. So where I ended episode 44 was my marriage to Eric sort of fading away. And I talked about the year of patience and all of the steps go into ending a marriage. My marriage to Eric lasted five years and one month in terms of being legally married. Our official court divorce became final in October of 1998. We, for the most part, separated in 96. But let me explain that a little bit. The first two years of my marriage to Eric, I really did focus on staying married to Eric. Baha'i things. And we went on pilgrimage and we went to this big Baha'i convention in New York City at the Javits Center. I really did try really hard to focus on all of those things. When I really realized this was not going to work, I'm not happy. Eric was feeling the same way. We were drifting apart, drifting apart. And we lived in this teeny, teeny apartment. Please understand, it was so small. You know, there was no being apart from one another. There was no place to go. So he took a job at Greenacre in Elliott, Maine. And then I was still in Concord at the apartment. So he would come home on the weekends and then go back. Then sometimes he wouldn't. And so the spring of 96, I was pretty much living alone in my apartment. And really, we had both, we had both decided for the most part that the marriage was over. But I think we had gone for a year of patience yet, but we had made this decision and, and we, didn't, we didn't talk on the phone. Keep in mind, now we live in instant communication now. In 1996, you called somebody by picking up the phone that was a landline and you talked on the phone or car phones were new. It's funny. It's illegal to talk on your phone in a car, but the first cell phones were in cars. They plugged into the car lighter and you, you use them in your car. Eric and I really didn't communicate much. And during that time, I spent a lot of time with this guy, Steve, and he was an educator as well in the Concord School District. We went on a handful of dates and we had, we had worked together briefly. We had a very, very strong connection. And that was a blast. That relationship was fun. It was like a nice break sort of as my marriage is ending and, you know, who knows what's next. I also belonged to a ski club at the time for single people, although I wasn't single when I joined it, but it was called Bumps and Bruises. And I would go, I would go up north. It was in Franconia and ski at Cannon. If you know Cannon Mountain, it's the best place ever to ski. I've probably skied there 300 times in my life anyway. I love it so much. It's just such a, such a part of my story in so many ways. Those things were going on. I, I had developed a life for myself finally that was separate from my marriage to Eric. And I was really trying to branch out. I was also coaching three seasons. And in the spring of 1996, after winter of 95 going into 96, that whole year, things were really, really, really just ending with Eric. The other piece that was really hard was during those first couple of years with Eric, Jim, my boyfriend that I had broken up with when I became engaged to Eric, got married. And I remember that I had a really, really, really uh, profound sense of regret and loss during that time. I was just wrecked, just devastated and wrecked because I felt like maybe I'd made the wrong decision. I had some misgivings right away. Now, I don't feel that way now. I feel our lives have gone the way they were supposed to go. And I mentioned that before, and I don't want to say anything that would embarrass them because we both live local. But, but I remember just feeling this profound sense of loss. And hindsight now tells me I should have just slowed down and sat in that, but I didn't. I just became busy. 95 going into 96, I'm 
seeing this guy, Steve, a little bit. I had some other connections on again, off again that you know meet for dinner here and there. Now I'm still relatively sober, still going to AA meetings, trying to hold together a life that I now feel is a bit chaotic and falling apart. So I'm coaching as well, coaching cross country and indoor track. And I had a student come to me and I'm going to share a little snippet here about what the student came to me about, knowing that it's going to pique your interest, but it's too much of a story to weave into this story. Because I was young and very open and all of this, my runners would come to me often with stories of things in their lives and ask for advice and just different things that were bothering them. And so this girl came to me and said that she was in love with one of her teachers and that they had been in a, in a relationship and she didn't know what to do and she didn't want to go away to college, and but she was having misgivings. She was a, just a mess, which of course is what happens when you're a high school girl involved with a teacher. So I confided in her that I had had a similar experience when I was in high school and I went to Concord High. And so a lot of those of you who are listening to me that grew up with me or whatever know exactly what I'm talking about. The details of this are for its own very own episode. And I have a whole series I'm going to do around the Concord School District. And <laughs> anyway, so I confided in her that I knew exactly how she felt. I took her hands in mine and I said, you know, I never told anybody. I just tried to manage it in all of this. What you need to do is find an adult. You found me. I work in the district. I'm not part of your family. But find an adult in your family that you trust as much as you trusted me to tell me and get some help and have them help you. So she went and told her parents. And her parents were, of course, livid that this was happening to their daughter. But they were equally as mad at me because I shared something that they thought was inappropriate and that there should be some repercussions. So this was my first meeting with Chris Rath that wasn't her hiring me or being my advisor in college. And it was a pretty intense meeting, like very intense. And I was, she asked me point blank if what I had said to this teenage girl was true and who was it? And of course, all of the people involved in my situation were still present in the district. I remember thinking to myself, if I were a bank teller, I wouldn't have to share what happened to me in high school because it had not, would have nothing to do with me working at a bank. But I'm a teacher and I'm in the district that I grew up in. And I'm coaching girls at the high school I went to. All of these connections and tie-ins that are intense. So of course I was truthful and honest. And again, so many red flags around her as an administrator. She asked me would I help her? And of course I said I wouldn't. So I was able to reach out and find several other now grown women that had had similar experiences with, with this particular teacher and a couple of others 20 years prior to when I was teaching and sharing all this in the 70s and 80s. So of course I helped her. Why wouldn't I help her? And knowing what she did to me all those years later, a lot of my anger toward Chris Rath comes from the fact that I really put myself out there. I helped her and she was able to, it was all this publicity in the paper and all the mass sweep of teachers being let go and all of this. And, you know, I went along with it all. She actually had me sit in front of that then school board. She was the principal at Concord High at the time. She had me sit in front of that school board and share my story. Like, you know, <laughs> When I think back on it, it's profound. At any rate, all of that happened in the spring of 96. And I was teaching at Walker School at that time. And there was a big field trip to Washington, D.C., of which I was not a part. But all of this was going on. My principal at Walker, Clint Cogswell, was wonderful during this, very supportive of me. You know, I was a hard worker. The kids loved me. I did a lot of things for Walker School. I did Walker School track, did a citywide elementary meet that was hosted by Walker School track. It gave such pleasure and credence and positive exposure of our school because Walker was, is in a tougher neighborhood of Concord. And so, you know, it was often, oftentimes didn't get the good publicity. And so Clint was in my corner and he said, why don't you go on this field trip? 
it was a field trip with the with the sixth grade. We still had sixth grade at the elementary schools at that time. I think this might have been the last sixth grade or one of the last before it switched to sixth graders doing it at Runlet. Off I went as a chaperone on this four day drive a bus to DC, you know, field trip. This was the year that President Clinton had come to Walker School. Walker School was the first school to have internet and email and all of this in an elementary school in nationwide, I think. We were really, really ahead on that. And so it was a big, it was a really big event for us as a school. That had happened in the fall and winter. And so this was in the spring going to DC. So I went on this field trip. Lo and behold, Kenny, who I would marry one day, was a chaperone on this trip. We didn't know each other at all. And I didn't really know a lot of the kids other than, other than the kids in the resource room that I, that I taught. And we were on, on these buses driving down and I was on a bus with a couple of other staff. And I remember one of the staff members, her name was also Barb and she'd call him Big Bands. And his son was Little Bands because they both have the first name Kenny. My first sort of inkling that Kenny existed was, was then. What I noticed about him was he spent the whole drive down talking to the bus driver, you know, just chatting him up and all of this. And, you know, bus drivers are like custodians and, you know, food service people, they're invisible sometimes. You know, you, you love what they do for you, but you don't really see them. And so I just remember thinking to myself how nice it was, you know, that this guy was so nice to the bus driver. So long story short, I met Kenny on a field trip, a Walker School field trip, and we became friendly right away. And then we were put in a group together. And as different as we are, we also are very similar when it comes to kids. And he is just a natural with children. So everybody loved him. Everybody loved Mr. Banzoff. Well, everyone loves Miss Higgins although I was Mrs. Nelson at the time. <laughs> That's so funny. I changed my legal name to Barbara Higgins Nelson, but most of the kids still call me Mrs. Nelson. Although it's funny, they call me Miss Nelson or Mrs. Higgins. They always mix it up. So that was my name that, back then. Anyway, the field trip was a blast. We had so much fun and there were all sorts of different things that we visited. And we spent four days in DC walking all around. We went to a rose garden ceremony. I remember we went up into the Washington Monument and I could look out every window on every side and I knew the buildings I was looking at. Of course, you can read the little things. And so I would talk like Cliff Clavin from Cheers. You know, Cliffy was the mailman that knew everybody. Only my old listeners would know what I'm talking about. But I was all, I made a Cliff Clavin reference about how I know everything. And so anyway, we ended up having a group of kids together. So we spent the four days with the same group of kids chaperoning around. And it was just a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. And the drive home was exhausting. We all slept, blah. We stopped someplace for some weird restaurant for food. It was delicious. We ate a ton of food. So when we got back, we just realized that we were friends, but we didn't travel in, in any sort of similar social circles. A couple of months went by, the school year wound down, and the, the sixth graders had an overnight at Bearbrook State Park, like a camp out. And again, I was, I was a chaperone for that. I was a chaperone for that a lot. And then, of course, his son was there. And so he came and did that one as well. And so we got to sort of hang out again, canoeing and all that kind of like campy stuff. We really got to know one another and we were friendly for a long, long time. So later on in that summer, he and his then wife worked, you know, really worked full time away a lot and their kids were by themselves a lot. So I would, went over and, and I sort of nannied them. Primarily I hung out with his youngest daughter, Katie. I took her everywhere. We had a lot of fun. We did a lot of hiking and swimming, beach days. She came to Storyland with my mom and my niece, Kelsey. You know, we just did things together. She was nine or 10, so she's pretty young to be home alone. You know, and Davey and Kenny had their friends and sports camps and things like this that kept them a bit more busy. So I didn't spend as much time with them, but just an adult to sort of keep an eye on things. And so that's sort of how we met. You know, what's weird is we met on May 6th, 1996. That was the first day of the field trip. And 20 years to the day later, May 6th, 2016, is when the state of New Hampshire would declare Molly dead. These little nuances get me sometimes when I look at dates and I think of all the things that have happened on those dates. 
I met Kenny with whom I would have Molly and together we would send her off into heaven. The whole first year, we really just knew one another through whatever social events we might be at together. He did, in fact, have some friends that I was friendly with. And so I started, because I was watching the kids, I started hanging out a little bit sometimes. I always kind of felt like an outsider, though. I was still with Eric at the time. The other thing that happened in the 96 into 97 was I moved into a, an apartment that was right next to where Kenny was living at the time, this big, huge apartment. I think I talked about it in my last podcast. Eric and I moved in there together, actually, sort of knowing full well that our marriage was probably over. But for several months, again, a bigger apartment, maybe we can make it work. You know, all of these things, I meet Kenny at a time that I'm separate from Eric, but I'm still with Eric and Eric and I recommit and try to make it work. And, you know, all this back and forth and back and forth. But looking back on it now, I, I think, gosh, it's so chaotic, but so classic for somebody with my trauma, my trauma background, how I function on chaos when things get good and calm down. Where's the chaos? And when I was reading that book, The Body Keeps the Score, they were talking about a woman that was a drug addict and had had horrific sexual abuse as a child. And she would finally be making progress and she would like bust out of rehab wherever she was and, and go get wasted and get beat up or gang raped. She'd create this horrible stuff for herself. And, and part of it was she felt self-punishing and, and sexual abuse victims do. We constantly feel that we're disgusting and awful. And then the other piece is that when things are too calm, it becomes dangerous. The calm before the storm, the undertone. So you recreate the chaos because that's where you're comfortable because so many of your formative years were spent there. So when I look at my marriage to Eric ending and then meeting Kenny and all the cross fibers in there, I just come back to that particular chapter in the book and how spot on it is, you know, that I just created for myself all the time, trauma and chaos, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. So Kenny and I, the summer of 96, and then 96, 97 school year, we just knew one another. And I participated, you know, we did things together. We didn't do things together alone. There were school events that we had run into each other. He and his then wife, Karen, entertained a lot. And so we saw each other like that. And then the following summer, Eric had moved out and we had started our year of patience. And during that time, it was the summer of 97. I remember because Princess Diana died. That was when she died in that car crash. I was sitting out, out in front of the apartment building I lived in drinking coffee and I read that in the paper. I bought my little house on Albin Street and I loved it. It's this cute little brick house. I wish I had never sold it. That's another story for another time as well. I bought this little brick house and my friend Matt was living in it. And so he was married and lived in a bigger house. He had bought a bigger house and moved out. And so I bought Albin Street. I love that house. I drive by it all the time. It was just a sweet little brick house in the North End that looked like it might've once been a store or bakery or something. And so I bought it all by myself. And I was just very, very proud of myself. And so I moved in, I closed on it and moved in in September of 1997. So now I'm living in my own house <laughs> and my parents moved into the apartment I had been living in. They sold their house in Webster. They were a victim of the late eighties real estate thing where houses cost a ton of money and everyone was buying and building. And then it, the real estate market crashed. And now they owed more in their house than it was worth. And it was just this horrible situation. They sold that house and just sort of took a loss. And they moved into the apartment that I had been living in. And so I got tons of their furniture. They had more furniture than they needed. Actually, the furniture that the brown couch that I couldn't get rid of forever because it was, I had so many pictures of Molly on that couch. It was the last place she lied in this house before the ambulance took her away was on that brown couch. And so I first saw that couch in 1989 in Webster where my parents bought it. And then it went to... Alban Street, and then it came here. So by the time I checked it to the dump, it was over 30 years old and had just seen so much of my life. It was able to have beautiful furniture at Alban Street, you know, the hutch, table, chairs, living room, you know, couch, love seat, 
end tables, beautiful lamps. Like I just remember setting it all up and feeling for the first time, like I didn't have an apartment of a college student or somebody like that, like adulting is, I hate that term as I've said, but I just loved it. Every bit of that house. And in that house was where Kenny and I sort of started to realize that we had feelings for one another. And what do we do about this? Now, my marriage to Eric was over. I mean, we were living apart. We still got together to connect once in a while and all of this. I won't share the personals of Kenny's life at that time. It's not my place to share what was going on in his life, but it was not pleasant. And you don't fall in love with someone if you're okay, if you're happy and okay in your life. And so 97 is 98 was really, really tumultuous. And I wish I could take it back and do it right. I can't. All I can do now is never do that sort of thing again, right? Right? You can't unhit a dog you hit, but you can never hit another dog in your life and you've learned from it. I guess that's the best analogy I have. 97 is 98. I loved my new house, but I was going through a lot of real tumultuous experiences with Kenny and feeling like I'd found my person. Now, again, coming from my background, didn't it make sense that the person I decide I want is somebody that I really can't have at the time? I was also drinking a ton. So I started drinking again. I think when I was spending time with that guy, Steve, I talked about, we'd have beers and stuff, but not a lot. But when I started really socializing with, with Kenny and his social circle, alcohol was a huge piece of it. And so I just joined right in. And Kenny was a whiskey drinker. I started drinking whiskey and there was this McNaughton whiskey. It was like a blended whiskey, more of a bourbon, but from Canada, <laughs> we call it McNaughty. So for someone that hasn't had alcohol for like seven years, and now I get into it, and now I'm drinking, you know, hard alcohol, whiskey. And I can remember a couple of times of, it would be a weeknight. Alcohol didn't even cross my mind on a weeknight. But Kenny's lifestyle was very much daily drinking. And I think back to it now, and that's where I get into it, really heavily in the summer of 1997. 96 to 97, I wasn't what quite so much. Those were hard times. And I actually have a knot in my stomach talking about it now, because you're not supposed to disrupt somebody's family. And I, and I own a lot. I mean, it takes two, right? You can't, can't play soccer against yourself. You're just kicking a ball into a net. And so you can't have a relationship alone. Both people have their pieces and parts and their choices and responsibilities. Going into 98, 1998, I really felt like Kenny and I were not ever going to get together. And so that was that, you know, I was really trying to, you know, focus on school. I was a mess. I will say I was a, I was a mess, just a big mess. As the spring went along, I know that I would communicate with Kenny. And again, there were no cell phones back then. We had pagers, unbelievable codes of numbers that meant things so that we could communicate. I mean, I think back to how crazy that is. And sometimes it was just find a phone and call me, but you had to find a phone. If you're in your car driving up the highway and you get a page to call somebody, you have to pull off the highway and find a payphone. Payphones don't even exist anymore. There was a thing on TV that New York City took out its last payphone. So you couldn't even get a payphone now if you wanted one. That was a very different time. I was seeing my therapist, Judy, and I was just a huge, huge mess and seeing her all the time, every week, sometimes twice a week. And she was super helpful and crying and crying and crying. And what do I do? And how did I get here? And well, I wish she still practiced because I could use her now. So in the summer of 98, Kenny got to a point in his life where he realized it was time. He needed to, to go. And so I'll never forget, I was having Rolling Rock beer and, and roast beef sandwiches at the Gaslighter in Concord with Megan, my friend Megan, who was a huge, huge support to me at this time. I lived up in the tower and she lived across the street in an apartment. That was when I lived in that little apartment before I moved to the bigger one. And for so many years, she was just such a huge support to me. And during all of this, she was a support. And so we were eating dinner and I got a text message that he had left and could I come get him? And so we got him a, a sandwich and we got a six pack of beer. We went and got him and picked him up and or he had his car, we met him. I don't remember how that all worked, but we went and we went to my house on Alvin Street and we just sat 
we had food and, and beer and all this. And I brought Megan home and remember I went into the bathroom and Kenny told me this later and Megan got right up in his face and said, don't you hurt her. Because Megan had, Megan had watched me. She had just watched. You can't leave your family and move in with some lady. It's just not right. I helped Kenny find an apartment in West Concord, actually. And we furnished it. And we found things. And it was a place that he could see his kids that was, was neutral. I know it was very devastating for them. And so began that part of our lives and Kenny's divorce and all that went along with that. Actually, his divorce attorney was one of my really good friends from high school. She ended up being the justice of the peace at our wedding. But that whole year, 98 into 99, some of it was such a relief for me because I really truly did feel that Kenny was my person. And, and I think all these years later, even though what we have right now can't be qualified as a marriage, the parts of us that are okay are really solidly okay. And so it's a conundrum sometimes as to what to do. But at the time, I just felt, I've said before that always when I was in a relationship, I had sort of the nice guy and then the exciting guy or the safe guy and the, and the challenging guy. You know, like if I were dating more than one person at a time, I wasn't dating two of the same person. Somebody always represented something else. And I really can trace it back to what I grew up watching in my own house. You know, the guy that lived at the house and the guy that took you skiing, you know, it was two very separate things. And talking about it so publicly, some people would shake their heads. You know what though? So many of us live with these things and think that there's something wrong with us or a TV show gets made about us and we're like the crazy person or whatever, you know, and, and we really are people functioning as best we can based on how we were raised and what we thought was normal growing up. Kenny set leaving his family and, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We spent a lot of time at the apartment. We spent a lot of time at my house. We were together all the time and we were drinking really heavily all the time. A ton of drinking. I remember my mom and dad coming to Albany Street once and there was like, I hadn't cleaned for a while. My sister, Johanna, lived with us as well. And she did her fair share of drinking. There were just alcohol bottles everywhere. And I think my dad was just like, what the heck? You know, as we tried to sort of develop a routine, like, okay, if we're going to be spending all this time together, let's develop a routine that works. And so 98 into 99 was, was sort of a chaotic year because he spent a lot of time, you know, checking on his kids and was still really connected to his house and his belongings there and all of this. 98 into 99. And in the summer of 99, his lease ran out and we decided that's enough. We'll live together. And he moved in to Albert Street, which wasn't a big adjustment because by then he was spending most of his time there anyway. The spring of 99, I had some foot surgery and I got really sick. And so I was on pain medicine and I was on antibiotics and I was laid up for a couple of weeks. And that's actually when I became pregnant with baby Gordy and didn't know it. So my divorce was final. My divorce was finalized in October of 1998. A funny thing, Eric would call the house landline again and Kenny would answer and he'd go, hi, is my wife there? Eric, we would tease. Eric was a real hick. He was from Northwestern Pennsylvania. So we'd always be like, my wife, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It was just always funny to sort of make fun of Eric being kind of a hick. Eric made fun of himself as well. So he would say, hey, Kenny, is my wife there? Eric had called like the night before our, our divorce was to become final, just so he could say one last time, can I talk to my wife? It was kind of funny. At any rate, my divorce was final, but Kenny's was barely started at this time. They had been separated, but it was just really inching along. And, you know, I was on the pill and there was no plan on my end to have a baby, but I became pregnant. And I talked about baby Gordy, I think in season one, if you haven't listened to season one, I tell the whole story about all that went into that baby. We're here we are living together where, you know, arrangements and furniture and belongings. I'm meeting his family. I hadn't met anyone. It was just this really, really tumultuous time, obviously, and not thinking I was pregnant. And so April into May into June, now it's spring and it's sort of our first real 
spring together. We're marching along and I just, that was when I was like gaining weight and I had these big boobs and what's going on. And I finally realized I was pregnant at the end of June. While all this was happening, Kenny's older brother was getting married. So here I am at this time, 14 weeks pregnant, the end of June, I've only known I'm pregnant for a week. And now I have to go to Pennsylvania and meet his mom, his dad, his sister, his brother, all of his family for the first time. And I'm pregnant. And I'm not just a little pregnant. I'm enough now that anyone that knows pregnancy would know what they're looking at. And of course, Kenny's dad is a retired OBGYN. So that was probably one of the most stressful, stressful, stressful first time meeting anyone ever. Kenny and Davey came, you know, it was, it was this huge trip to Pennsylvania. We had a blast. We went to City Island and the wedding was beautiful and the reception was fun and everything was fine. But, you know, I was 14 weeks pregnant. So that really was quite classic of how our life was at that time. Kenny and I marched along. The good thing in all of this, my first marriage, I knew Eric for 11 weeks. Don't marry someone you've only known for 11 weeks. <laughs> so at least with Kenny, it wasn't like everything that we had gone to prior to marriage was fluffy. It wasn't like everything was a date with dinner in the movies or, you know, some sort of social thing. We really, really had the best of the best and the worst of the worst. And, you know, our whole meeting and the separation and all of the drama that went along with marriage is falling apart. We went through all of that together and I have this house now. And so, you know, Kenny's really good around the house. And he would be helpful in putting together a life. I was timing road races a lot. He loved it. He would come and time road races with me. That became an income stream for us later on when things were tricky at his business. We really did work through the good, the bad, and the ugly before we ever, ever got married. So we march along and we all know the story of baby Gordy. The whole summer of 1999, I'm pregnant with and then losing a baby. That summer, we didn't see a lot of people. I didn't go to Camp Greenacre. I didn't go to Princeton camp. I, I didn't do anything except worry about my ever-growing belly. And by the time, you know, I had not ever been pregnant before, so I didn't have a big belly early on. I was still really fit. I was doing a lot of running. People noticed these boobs I had <laughs> because I was this thin, fit runner with little, little teeny boobs. And all of a sudden, it's like, dang, Barb, you got some boobs going on. I also remember hugging... Jim, the guy that I had dated actually out in front of my house, we hugged for something and he stepped back. I was like maybe a week away from having to deliver the baby. And I actually told him, oh yeah, I have a situation here. So that was the summer of 99 and Kenny and I marching along. So after we lost the baby and went through all of baby Gordy, and it was just so tragic and horrifying, we really did buckle down and revamp on being healthy. We cut the drinking in quarters, like we cut it way down. We'd get up and do Taibo in the morning. <laughs> But we'd go running in the evening. I would make sure that we had things to do so that we couldn't just come home and have a drink. And we cut way down. I mean, we just cut so far down on our alcohol consumption. We ate well, we lost weight, super healthy, all through 99 into 2000. And I remember New Year's Eve 2000, Megan came over. We had some socializing at the house. It was a lot of fun. We had a Kenny's business Christmas party there. I had my road race timing company party there. Like we did things that weren't fun. We really brought people into the house. I had Thanksgiving there in 1998. My huge family all came to Thanksgiving in my little teeny tiny house on Alvin Street. That was something that was different for me as well. And really facilitated by Kenny, who came from a family that did things together as a family. Now I did too, but I had sections of my family. So sections of my family were together all the time. And we were sort of a bit separate from that. So it wasn't like I saw my cousins on the daily, but a lot of my cousins saw each other on the daily. And so it was just like that. Kenny spent a ton of time at his papa's, at his grandfather's house all the time in the summer. And so he knew those cousins really well. Every holiday was family oriented. So he came from a strong family background. And so 
having get-togethers and gatherings and creating family was second nature to Kenny. That was a way that eased our transition into living together. The other thing about Kenny and I that was really, really good and remains good, even though most of the time we really can't stand each other sometimes, is that we just live well together. Both have a patience for messiness and clutter, which is not necessarily a good thing, but if either one of us were fastidious about being neat, super neat, our relationship would not have lasted as long as it has. Our marriage and then our co-parenting and then our surviving Molly and now our co-parenting Jack. There are times I get crazy looking around my cluttered house, but I realize, you know, in some ways it's the life path I've chosen, at least for now. 1999 and 2000 was us marching together toward, you know, what I thought would be, you know, a lifetime of happiness. For the most part, it was early on. 2000 was a big shift for me. I was really starting to make huge progress as a coach at Concord High School. My teams were suddenly huge. My cross country teams, after being so cruddy for five or six years, were now always top two or three in the division class I'll meet and always making it to States and making it to New England's now. You know, I really had started a trend and a legacy that would last almost until I lost my job. I loved my job. I loved going to work. I loved coaching. I had so many team parties. I remember in the fall of 97, Lori Grabowski gave a talk. She talked at the banquet and she talked about how we bought a house, meaning the cross country team bought it because I had a big poster party in there before I had any furniture. When we moved out, there was still glitter from that party. You know, those were tumultuous years that phasing out of Eric and the, I'm still married to Eric, but I'm not, and I'm separated. And then I'm, I'm dating a couple of different people. And then, and now I'm going through a trauma professionally with trauma that I had in high school and I'm meeting Kenny. And now I've met this new person. And of course, lo and behold, I meet someone I'm, isn't available for me to have. And his ex-wife's family still really have so many negative feelings for me. I think they try hard not to, but <laughs> when anything goes wrong, <laughs> my past becomes one big affront to them. There's still a lot of anger there. Kenny has to straddle that fence and I feel badly sometimes. It's why I struggled so much yesterday with him going to play golf. I just was so frustrated because we had agreed after a set amount of time, I would record my podcast. And, you know, if I had to work, if I had to go in and work a shift someplace, he wouldn't have said yes to go golfing. That's where this is a struggle for me. 2000, we filled our bathtub with water, Y2K, all these crazy things that were happening back then. And that was sort of when our life began marching along. So I'm going to wrap up with the summer of 2000 and planning our wedding and getting married. And then I'll stop there because that really is a chunk of time that culminates with the wedding. So in the spring of 2000, I'm coaching. I remember I'm coaching track and I'm at New England's with Ember Smith and Ember is in the two mile. And I'm talking to Kenny on the phone because I need the school records because I need to see if Ember has broken the school record. I have these three piles of papers on a table in my living room and Kenny, go to the pile on the right and halfway down is a pink piece of paper and about five pieces up from there are the school records. Sure enough, there they were. I mean, there were reams and reams of papers on that desk. Track was amazing. I had just some really amazing runners and Ember was one of them. And so going into the summer of 2000, everything just seemed right. I was timing a ton of road races. Kenny's divorce was closer and closer and closer to being final. I had to be deposed. <laughs> it was funny. I remember being questioned about my engagement ring. I had saved all this money in a glass jar in my bedroom and it was like a thousand dollars worth of coins. And that's what we used to buy my engagement ring with. And I didn't wear it to the deposition because I didn't want to, it was just all the things that go into the dramatic beginnings and ends of families and relationships. The attorney for that ended up being my landlord years later when I got an apartment up the street. As I said, it comes around and around in my life. It's just a big circle. Track and field is the perfect sport for me because 
do you finish where you started? <laughs> Who can get nowhere the fastest? That's what my dad used to say. Back to the matter. The summer of 2000 was probably one of my happiest summers that I can remember. Things were settling in. Kenny and me as a couple had become normal, spending more time doing normal things, timing road races. The end of July comes, we time a road race on Martha's Vineyard and we had the most amazing time. It was this little ice cream. It was put on by a creamery, I think. You have to drive all your stuff onto the boat and then you drive your car to the place and then you time the race and you load your car back up and you drive back. But it was, it was Martha's Vineyard. It was beautiful. We had so much fun and just wonderful time. But I had Princeton camp. So we got up and we took the first ferry home. And it was early in the morning, like, you know, five in the morning. We get off the ferry the crack of dawn and we drive two and a half hours to Concord. So now it's like nine o'clock and I'm throwing stuff aside and I've already packed for Princeton. And without being too personal, we were so in love at that time. And we just had this beautiful romantic morning before I left. I'll leave it at that. And off I go to Princeton camp and it's the first week of August. I think I pick up Ember and bring her with me. And we go and I remember getting there and seeing Farrell and, you know, he wants to know how, how is everything and how's everything going and everything else. We have this wonderful Princeton camp. And I come home and I'm feeling funny. Wonder what's going on. I'd say mid-August into late August, I find out that I'm pregnant. And so I'm pregnant with Gracie. This is wonderful news because we had sort of decided that we were ready to do this anyway. I was never going to have kids. I have to be really honest. I was never going to do it. I just didn't want to repeat anything that had happened to me as a child. I was never going to do it. And then getting pregnant with, and then growing Gordy for 24 weeks, and then having to say goodbye to him made me realize I had to have a baby. And although we weren't yet married, the divorce was coming and I just felt like now is the time. You know, at that time, I thought I was so old. It was very, very deliberate on our part in the sense that we were not using protection and that wouldn't this be a wonderful thing? I had no trouble getting pregnant, just so we're clear. I find out sort of in mid-August that in fact, I'm pregnant. So that's a piece of news. About a week after that, I'm out running and the house I'm sitting in was not my house at the time. And there was no fence around it. I went and did like an eight mile run. And when I came back, there was a fence around it and it really made the property pop. And I'm like, wow. So I'm like, that's amazing. So the next day I'm, I go out, you know, running again and I come up and I run by the house and I just admire the fence. And when I come back, there's a for sale sign in front of it. And I'm like, oh my God, Kenny, we have to buy that house. And it was seriously instantaneous. We have to buy the house. So I called the realtor and I said, well, I want to go look at the house. And she said, all right, showing start. We made the appointment. We were the first people to see the house. We walked through it and I remember it was almost empty and the people that were living in it didn't want to sell it, but they were a family that relocated every three or four years based on the husband's work. And so we walked through and I turned around and I said, I want to make an offer. Well, I didn't really had done any prerequisites, financing, all that kind of stuff. So I called the woman that I had worked with financially when I bought Alvin Street and said, here's what I want to do and blah, blah, blah. And so I got pre-approval and I made an offer and I just offered asking price. I didn't care. I didn't want anyone else to buy it. And I said, they can have out asking price and whatever they need. You know, I just, I wanted the house. So Kenny's divorce wasn't final. And so we couldn't buy that house together. And so I bought it myself. I have had this amazing financial woman, Christine Francor. I don't know if she's still doing the mortgage stuff or not. She was phenomenal. So I owned a property. We could use that property and, and sort of like make it all work. And so I was able to buy the house that I'm sitting in now. It'll be 22 years in August. Well, I and we and I have owned this house. So that was a huge piece of summer, but I just felt like it was step, step, step. Like, and this is an analogy. I know I'm jumping around and I'm sorry if I'm hard to follow. Please, please, please reach out if I am. But this is one of those examples where everything falls into place. And for somebody that knows the bad is around the corner, 
You can't trust the good because the bad's bound to happen. This was a time where everything was just okay. Like I had this wonderful summer. I was healthy. I had gotten notice that baby Gordy would never have been able to live outside of my tummy and that his little body was helping other babies. So that was a good thing. I was healthy. I was running really fast. I was coaching so well. Oh my gosh. I had amazing runners, amazing runners. I had this wonderful cross country team in the fall of 2000. I was timing a ton of road races. I was a successful coach at Princeton camp. I really was everything I wanted to be. And I felt so just fulfilled with it and just so happy. And then I got married. Then I bought the house. Once the house was purchased and we were moved in, we moved in right around Labor Day weekend, like the beginning of September, beginning of school and all that. And I remember we, we lived in like three rooms for about six months. We had this huge house and the rooms were just empty because everything was so busy. We culminate the end of summer by buying the house. And at that point, Kenny's divorce is really close to being final. And so we're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And I'm hoping that it's final sooner than later. I want to be married when Gracie's born. I mean, it, I guess it wouldn't have been that big of a deal, but at the time it's something I wanted. I didn't want to walk down the aisle with a big belly. So we were out. I got a phone call from Kenny on September 23rd, which is a big day for me because that was my sobriety date and my friend Bridgie's birthday and Bruce Springsteen's birthday, that his divorce was final. He was divorced. It was final. It was over. It was done. We went out, went out for dinner. And of course I'm pregnant. So celebrating is very different for me at that time. But we started talking about where we could get married. We thought let's do Beaver Meadow Golf Course. So he called up and reserved it. And we thought we were all set. We set the date for Friday, October 13th. So Friday the 13th. And we really did that around the date that was available at Beaver Meadow. So we let everyone know we did beautiful wedding announcements. And then I had to throw them away and print new ones because we put Beaver Metal Golf Course. They had double booked and we were the second people to, to request the date. So they couldn't do our wedding. So we were sitting at what was then a restaurant downtown. It's been a million things. I think it's Tandy's now, but it was something else. It was a restaurant and a bar. And we're sitting there eating dinner, commiserating, like, where are we going to get married now? And the bartender, who was the manager of the restaurant, said, follow me. And he leads us out into the back of the restaurant, which is in Eagle Square in Concord, to this beautiful atrium. And he goes, get married here. We'll cater the wedding. So bada bing, bada boom. We have a place to get married that's right at the place we're going to eat. And Eagle Square is beautiful. We have the fountain. Keep in mind, September 23rd to October 13th, that's 21 days. That's essentially three weeks. In those three weeks, we chose food. We rented tables. We reserved Eagle Square. We reserved the atrium. We sent invitations. I bought a wedding dress on sale. I got a beautiful veil. We rented tuxedos. We took care of it all. We put together a wedding in three weeks. A big piece of that was my cross-country team. Now, this is what I mean by family and why I miss coaching so much. I truly thought I would still be coaching these girls and would have 30 years of coaching behind me at Concord High. In that fall, they gave us a wedding shower. They had this surprise in our wedding and all they said was, you have to put us in your, because I said, well, I have a wedding program. I, I need to know what you're going to do. And so they finally told me, okay, we're going to sing a song to you. We're going to sing The Rose. The week of my wedding, I took Thursday and Friday off. Kenny's parents came up and his sister, Bobby. We had things to plan. Bill Whitmore, who was the AD at Concord High at the time, let the girls get dismissed at one o'clock because they were all in the wedding. I had like 36 bridesmaids. They were all dressed up and beautiful. They all came. They helped me decorate. It was amazing. So we met at one o'clock for practice. I had my hair in an updo. And got ready for the wedding. And so he came to the wedding. They were all at the wedding. It was the most amazing, wonderful night, this wedding. It was just amazing. And, you know, they just did everything. They gave me a wedding shower, as I said, and they sang the rose and they sang a cappella. So if you're in the atrium where we had the altar, when you look ahead, it was just beautiful. And they sang a cappella version of the rose. It was, makes me cry. 
<laughs> I'm not going to apologize for crying. It was just such a beautiful night. It was really one of the most beautiful nights of my life. And I think back to that night and what I thought was in store for me and what ended up happening to me couldn't be further from the truth. And it was just really not that many years away, the beginning of the end of Molly and everything else. But that night was wonderful. I was pregnant with Gracie, but not so much that you could tell. And we had this amazing wedding and we didn't have a honeymoon. It was sunny in 85. It was this beautiful summer weather, full moon, Friday the 13th and a full moon. It was beautiful. The next day I had a cross country meet. We had the alumni race. And so I ran it because I'm alumni in my veil and I wore like white running shorts and a white tank top. So I was like the bride. And Kenny's parents came and watched me run and it was just this amazing weekend. They had a lobster dinner and I could not be around because I'm allergic to lobster. And I can't remember where I went or what I did during the time that they had their lobster dinner. <laughs> Kenny will have to remind me. They left. And I remember Sunday afternoon, it was just exhausting. The weekend was finally over and Kenny and I laid down to take a nap. And the weather changed and the cold wind came through the bedroom window upstairs. And then it was no longer summer, it was fall. So that was my marriage. And that was really the beginning of what I thought would be something very different than what it ended up being. And I think sometimes that's true for all of us. The last little caveat to that is I kept my pregnancy a secret until 16, 17 weeks because I wanted to make sure that Gracie's heart was okay. That's when I found out that baby Gordy wouldn't be okay. And so we didn't tell anybody. I told Ember Smith, she's the only person I told. And that's why Gracie's name is Ember because Ember Smith was such a huge piece of that. But we won Class L States in New England that year. And it was such a huge series of wins for us as a team because Manchester Central at the time, they had just had won and they had a solid team. It's not like that we beat weak teams. That year in the meet of champions in 2000, I had five runners under 20 minutes, two under 18, two ran in the 18s and three ran in the 19s. That's a good cross-country team. That's an amazing cross-country team on Dairyfield Park. I remember Kenny left a golf tournament, his Harvest Golf Tournament early to come and watch. Like it was just a time where things seemed really, really good. And I was just happy, happy with everything and happy with, with so much in my life. Polly read in my wedding, a woman named Colleen read in my wedding. Kenny's sister, Bobby, do a Bible quote in our wedding. I let her pick one. My dad did the Baha'i part. Ember was the ring bearer. And my friend Deb was the justice of the peace. She performed the ceremony. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful, wonderful time. And I thought, I thought that I knew, I just thought so many things. It's hard for me sometimes. Someone like me that's had trauma and grief understands how something can be beautiful and sad at the same time. And I just look back to what I thought my life was going to be and what it ended up being or what my choices made it be. I get choked up and I struggle. <laughs> this is why podcasts are therapeutic. It brings you right back. So anyway, it's funny, this particular season, it's just about the mundane things of life, you know, me moving back and living in Concord. And I'm just sort of telling you about all my things that I was doing at that time. And I just hope it's not some boring, you know, I feel sometimes like I'm just telling some boring story. There are so many, <laughs> so many deeper things that are yet to come. But, but I think it's important for my listeners to understand the framework that goes into all of this. So I'm going to end the storytelling part, the chronology piece of this podcast episode here. I am going to add in right now because some of you, when you listen two or three weeks down the road, won't know this, but most of you know, my listeners know, I went to Utah and filmed a commercial for Montefiore Einstein Medical Center. And that TV commercial has been on repeatedly in New York City. I received phone calls and emails and text messages with people that have seen the commercial. That's very exciting to me. So then I started to get, hey, Barb, look at this billboard. And it was a picture of me in a billboard. Well, I got several, like all over the place. Like somebody saw it north of the city and somebody saw it south of the city. And 
and the billboards are a bit different. They're not all the same. And so I was just like, oh my God, I've got to get in my car and go look at these things. So I messaged one of my connections there and he responded by saying, yeah, well, look at this. And it's a building in New York City and one whole side of the building is me, is the billboard. It's 30 stories tall. It's 30 stories of me and Jack. It's huge. It's huge. And so that's just now come out. When I agreed to do all this, I had no idea that it would be this big. And I don't know that they thought it would be this big either. The story is compelling. The loss of Molly, the brain tumors, Molly had having had a brain tumor, Kenny's kidney transplant. You know, they don't even know the backstory of my relationship with Kenny and all that was going on and Roy and my job and all the things at the time of Molly's death that add so much flavor to this story. They know, but it's not part of that story. And so Montefiore had nothing to do with me having Jack, but because I was there and because I was, you know, they found the brain tumors and all of that made it possible for me to have Jack, that piece of the story is big for them. It's this huge piece, this huge promotional piece for the hospital, even though what I talk about didn't happen at the hospital. It's much bigger than I thought it would be. And so I'm left feeling a little bit insecure and a bit tender. And I'm also left feeling like I don't want it to go to my head. You know, like I have to be really careful here. So I have two different responses from people. One response is, oh my gosh, that's amazing. This is wonderful. You know, lucky you. And then the other response is, well, I hope you're getting paid for that. How much money are you getting for that? I didn't agree to do these ads for money. To me, I've just been gifted a ginormous stage on which to share my story. So to me, I've already been paid. But it shows me how differently people think about things and it leaves an uneasy feeling in my tummy. And I'm not sure why. Mostly I'm very, very excited. What I do hope happens for me is that by people, people in the public speaking industry, people in the support industry, people in the, I don't know, TV industry, take a look at all this and have an interest and I get a bigger stage to share my story. Ultimately, the way that we all learn from one another is to share our stories and I go right back to people like, Sylvia Plath and Virginia Woolf and, you know, modern day Glennon Doyle, you know, even Mayim Bialik, who is a TV star first and a movie star. She is just as famous for her normal, normal stuff as she is for all of that. But I look at those other women and I think, okay, I'm just no different than they are. And they again and again and again will turn themselves back to the fact that they were just like everyone else. And all they're doing is telling their story. But so many people need to hear the stories. And that's how it is with me. So I don't ask for a lot of feedback, but I am interested here in this whole, take a look, Google Montefiore and take a look at all of the stuff that they did, you know, the commercial, and it's all on their website, www.montefiore backslash Barbara. And I'm sure there'll be a link in the show notes. Go and take a look at it. And then if you look at any of my social media, you'll see I've put picture after picture of the billboards. You know, what are your thoughts on something like this? If this were to happen to you, are you like, oh my God, you need to get money? Or are you more like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. What a blessing, what a gift. You can share your story. How I feel about it is how I feel. And I have very, very specific ways that I would like this to go. My big hope is that somebody somewhere with connections to things like a TED Talk or a public speaking tour where I can go talk at conferences that help women, could be for IVF, it could be for child loss, it could be for child abuse, it could be for trauma. I would love for those opportunities to come up because sometimes I think we spend too much time listening to the experts that may or may not have experience in what they're talking about. You know, I'm not here to cure anybody or heal anybody, but if talking about what's happened to me can help somebody, then all that I've gone through is worth it. And that's a big piece of why I do the podcast as well, because I'm just Barb. That's, that's it. I'm nothing else. 
I'm flawed. I've been hurt and I have caused hurt. I have fallen in and out of love more times than I can count. I think sometimes I have so much unresolved that I would like to fix and settle and put to bed forever. And I have a heart that I don't know if I ever, ever need or want or will be able to be in love again. And that's fine with me. That's just where I'm at. I share all this because I'm not the only one that is going through things. I'm not the only one that is, you know, struggling with who knows what. My mouth is a blessing and a curse. So here I am blabbing away. So anyway, it's 4th of July tomorrow. I hope you had a good Independence Day weekend. I'm not feeling very free right now in my country as a woman. And I have a hunch with the way things look like they might go, a lot of freedoms are going to be lost in the months to come. And that worries me. But right now on Independence Day, I'm going to choose to think about the freedoms that I do have and the first world problems I'm lucky enough to suffer from as opposed to how many people on this planet live. If you live in the New York City area or tri-state area, whatever, go take a look at a billboard and tell me what you think. And please, please respond and tell me your opinion on things. If you live far away, I hope that you're happy and healthy wherever you are. As always, do something good for yourself. Listen to a podcast that isn't necessarily mine or take yourself out to dinner or have a cold beer on a hot summer day. I don't know, listen to music you love. Go to a concert, do something for yourself. Put your oxygen mask on first so that you're now better willing to not only help others, but to be an, a happy part of your life. So happy 4th of July, everybody. And until next time, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Times Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.